This is session five of In the Days of Lot, and it all comes from a short little passage in Luke chapter 17, verses 28 through 32 or 34, where Jesus talks about what will it be like when uh, in the days when I return. And he gave him two life examples, the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And so we've been looking at the days of Lot, and we very methodically going through it, I guess, is another way to say slowly, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, so this week, we're going to see how far we can get. And I've got, uh, hopefully, some really practical applications. I've got 27 ways, or th- I'm sorry, 32 ways you can bring this to life. Just a simple little walkthrough, right? What if I can think of one more, and then we could say 33? I love it. If I think one more? Yes. You think one more, and we'll write it down. Um, <laughs> so let's let's say a prayer, and then we'll start. Father, we are grateful for um, the testimony of your word, how it speaks into our lives individually, how it speaks into our culture collectively. And uh, we are grateful for the mission you place us in, that you bring all of us into existence at precisely the right time for your purposes and your plans. Help us to feel equipped and called to the work you have for us. Help us to have courage to speak those words when they come to us from you. And may lives be changed because of what we do for you. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we've made it in Genesis chapter 9 all the way up to verse 17. I want to pick it up there in Genesis chapter 19, verse 17. And I'm reading from the International Standard Version. And it says it like this. As soon as the men, that's the angels, had brought them out of Sodom, he gave them some instructions. And the first thing he said was, run for your lives! And then he said, quick, quick, hurry. And then he says, uh, don't look back. And then they says, do not stop anywhere on the plain. Flee to the mountains. And then all those instructions in this because of this warning, or you will be swept away. And then we look at verse 18. We see Lot's response. Yes, sir. I will do it right away, sir. No problem, sir. I am on the board. Yes, sir. I'm going. That's not Lot's response at all. Lot resists, he refuses, and he says, no, 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 my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor in your sight. He sees the mercy that God is pouring out. Um, and we talked about that last week, that when, when God extends a hand of judgment, there's also a hand of mercy that goes with it. And then we choose which hand we attach ourselves to um, from God. Um, so I found mercy in your sight. I found favor in your sight. And you have shown great kindness by sparing my life, but I, I cannot run to the mountains, the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look down there is a town nearby where I can flee. And it is a small place. Please let me flee there. Is it not a small place? And then my life will be saved. Verse 21, very well, he answered. I will grant your request, this request as well. And will not demolish the town you have indicated. Now hurry, run there quickly. And I cannot do anything until you reach it. And that is why that town is uh, called Zora. And by the time the sun had risen over the land, Lot reached Zora. So this is, a, he's fleeing at night. He's trying to get out of the city by sunrise. They have an appointment, you know. God's bringing in the B-52s, and they've got to carpet bomb the place. And they've got a mission that's on task. And so there's an interesting point that I drew out of this, that your presence, your physical presence, in a place 
may just being there may be enough to extend grace over a person. Because while Lot was in Sodom, the angels could not render their judgment. So again, it goes back to this idea that we shouldn't minimize ourselves, our impact, what God can do through us in the lives of people around us or where we are. Um, And so when people and those people think about this, the people in Sodom were completely unaware of the danger, the dark spiritual danger that faced them. And Lot's presence made a difference for them. And of course, there was a point where he couldn't stay any longer and he had to come out. And that's when it all changed. So um, so then I had a question for you. Let's talk about this. Did Lot share his experience with the people of Zora when he reached Zora? I mean, can I come in the city of Zora, please? Yes, who are you? My name is Lot. Where are you from? I'm from Sodom. Well, what are you doing here? Uh, well, these guys came and they were going to kill everybody and, and I had to leave and I've got my wife and my daughters and uh, can, can we come in? You know, did they question him about what was going on? Did he testify to them? Did they hear him? Did they believe? Um, I don't know. Did, did, did Lot volunteer a warning to them that, you know, y'all better get straight because bad stuff is going to happen if you don't get straight. Don't you reckon the next morning that they uh, they would not need to have anybody tell them anything? They would see all the destruction and know that <laughs> it said Zora was not punished, right? Or did it? I think we're reading the text. I don't. I don't think Zora survived. I don't think it did, but I, maybe it did. Um, because he, as we go down, I think he gets scared of he gets scared and leaves Zora. Well, it says right here, I will grant this request as well and will not demolish the town you indicate. So he didn't, so maybe Zora didn't get that. I think that his absence brought in the judgment. I think is what may have happened. So we we can, we can look at that. So um, I want to go back to the, in, in verse 17, the instructions that the angelic messengers gave to them on how to escape the judgment zone. So don't stop anywhere along the plane. So this could be a picture of our lives in Christ as he sanctifies us daily in our living. That um, ours is not a salvation by our works, but our salvation is a life lived through a series of intentional actions each day that we engage in. And that to be less like our old selves and to be more like Christ. And that is going to be the end of our study will be in Ephesians chapter four. And that's one of the points that Paul makes to the uh, church in Ephesus is this, you know, the old man versus the new man, the old nature versus the new nature. Um, you know, there there are, of course, dozens of verses that do talk about this all through scripture and that idea of taking on the image of Christ and being remade and renewed. Uh, Colossians 3, 5 to 10 says, put to death, therefore, the components of your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And that's a very strong way to frame those ideas of being greedy, of being immoral, being having lust. And lust just isn't a, a sexual uh, desire. As we typically think of it in our culture, it can be a desire for anything you do not possess. You almost say like being covetous of something. And that doesn't mean a possession either. It can be a position of title or importance or affection that somebody else has and you you desire that. And verse six, 
Because of these, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. When you lived among them, verse 7, you also walked in these ways. Now consider like how much of the culture of Sodom soaked into him and into his family. And we'll see it shows up in his daughters and their choices shortly. Into the decision-making process for daily living in life. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7 says it like this. And if he rescued Lot, talking about God, a righteous man in anguish over the debauched lifestyle of the lawless men, uh, the Webster's Bible translation, and delivered just Lot, grieved by the habitual lewdness of the wicked, the international standard. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was greatly distressed by the immoral conduct of lawless people. The Christian standard Bible says, if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral. The Holloman Christian standard says, distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the immoral. Uh, the sore distress, he was sore distressed. Lot also suffered the indignity and the abominable way of, of life of those who were lawless. All these versions of the Bible, um, there's another one that says, oppressed by the injustice and lewd conversation of the wicked, distressed by the lascivious life of the wicked. So he was, it was rubbing off on him. Yes, sir? Yeah. 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Yeah. And it, it, and it, and we're going to see by the end of the chapter, it, that evidence shows up in the life of his family. Verse eight of our other text I was looking at, but now you must put aside all these things, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, and do not lie one to another since you have taken off the old self with its practices and you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of the creator. This whole idea that, um, and we'll see it in our, our primary study text in Ephesians 4, this idea of the way you think, the way you see life, the way you process what you see around you, um, the old way of thinking and understanding who's out there controlling all this and what is the nature of this person versus the way God is from the Bible and his nature, his attributes and what's really going on. And then when you have the correct lens of looking at life based on scripture and the, and the correct image of God, then life makes more sense to you. You can understand what God is better understand what God is doing. There's some more, um, verses here so it's you know which is idolatry you know which was interesting he used that phrase that the, these he listed these things put to death therefore the components of the earthly nature which is idolatry notice these actions um, which our culture our society will say there's nothing wrong with this there's nothing wrong with being greedy it's good for business you know there's nothing wrong with cheating out the other guy a little bit hey it's good for you you know you gotta look out for yourself man what's wrong with you you know, there's nothing wrong with looking over on the next page and seeing that the, the next desk and seeing that your answer doesn't agree with theirs and they're smarter than you. So you probably got it wrong. You should probably change your answer. There's nothing wrong with cheating, cheating and taking that answer from somebody that doesn't belong to you. Or, you know, they forgot to ring up one of these things at the store. I need to take it back. Or should I just stay here and gas is so expensive and they'll never miss it. I mean, there's all these little decisions we make every day in life that culture just says, I'll just do it. It's fine. No problem. And then we, of course, justify ourselves in that. But what Paul is saying is that when we engage in these things, we are giving worship. I mean, this is really painful to say, but that we are giving worship to Satan because we're engaging in idolatry. And there's only two places worship goes. 
one is Jehovah God, the one true God, and the other is is not him. And that's the demonic forces. And Paul says that behind all these statues that y'all are worshiping in the Roman culture, there's a demon receiving that worship. Uh, this very same thing is said in the Old Testament as well. So what our culture would say, that's just a healthy human behavior. I was born this way. This is how I have to live. This fulfills me. It makes me happy, you know? And, and so, but that's what they do. But the Bible says, no, 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 that's wrong. And um, and so then as we look at our our actions of life as being worship, because we're taught in the scripture that you worship God just by the work of your hands, even if it's no matter what that work is, it doesn't have to be your pastor to worship God with the work of your hands. So then if you're doing something with your hands, there's worship is going two directions. It's either going heavenward towards God or is empowering Satan and his demonic minions. So um, while none of so so that's just something for us to think about. And um so just consider that list, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Um If any of those ways are found in us, we should recognize it and we should acknowledge that before God for what it is and ask for forgiveness. And then we should express our desire for change um, and ask Jesus to change us because the reality is none of us can change ourselves. Um, the change that we need when we recognize something is wrong, it only comes from God. And so you don't have to, and we get confused, the culture gets confused on this, the idea that I have to make myself good enough to come to God. And come to church. Yeah, I invite people to church and they say, oh, I'm not good enough. I'll get zapped if I show up in church. I'm so bad. But that's that thing. We, we deceive ourselves by thinking, I've got to make me better. And what Jesus is saying, I just want a willing heart. Let me work in you to change you, to change your desires and to change how you live and to change the choices you're making when that situation shows up and change your reaction. Yes, sir. I've noticed in my life that when I look at this list, uh, anger comes to mind for me and I'm going to humanize this. I don't know exactly what, but on a scale of the small things, I feel like maybe the Lord has worked and doing pretty good, but there's probably been five or six times in my life when, when I was in such of a situation that my anger was such that I lost all control. And uh, it's not fun. It's not pretty. I regret it. It's it's awful and stuff. And so if I'm angry a little bit or if I'm angry a lot, I'm still angry, you know. Mm -hmm. So so I'm figuring I still have some more sanctification going on in that area for myself. I oh, were you angry at God? <laughs> uh, were you angry at God? No, I was angry at the situation. And I yeah. let myself... It really yeah. reduces, you know. Okay, there are people angry at God. Yes, there are people angry at God. So yeah. Yeah. You want to speak to that, Rosemary? No. Well, to me, regardless of where your anger is centered, it's still angry, whether it's at God or this person or this situation. Mm -hmm. So, really angry. have you found ways to um, um, see it coming? Because... Um, I never consider myself an angry person. I'm, I'm just not. I'm, I'm, I'm about as laid back as they come. 
Till well, I'm not. not me when the situation. <laughs> yeah, till I'm not exactly. I'm the cool cucumber. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm hot and as a tamale. So um, you talk about four or five incidents. I have a few there in my testimony. I have three holes in like the wall. Me, I'm like this, and then that thing happens, and whatever triggers that, I'm off. You know, it, it ain't no brag. I'm I'm right. So my question is to you. Have you found, because we're both old now, I, I don't have any holes in my sheet rod now. I don't have any doors. You know, well, I don't have any energy to be I, angry, but I was like, you know, there is, there is something in that. You get older, and even sexual desires and things like that, you, you say, oh, I finally conquered this. No, I'm just old. You know, I'm older. And so you think you improved somewhere, but but maybe you haven't. And and it's just a matter of I'm getting older and more tired. And so these these things that come out, and you and I could share later, but four or five times. I mean, there's a door that's laying flat on the ground where I kicked it down, and all the screws popped out of every single hinge. And, and I thought it was righteous anger. Um, I mean, it's a public story, but Dixie locked the bedroom door on me. We've been married about two years, but that door didn't stay locked. And I got in bed and pushed her over and said, you can sleep on the couch if you want, but this is my bed. Um, no, no, no thing there, but I could have found a better way to open the door. Yeah, you were about six foot seven. Yeah, I was, uh, I was I, well, I was, uh, and then, you know, fast forward seven years and there's three holes in the wall because they were, they were, I thought, being disobedient to me. And this is when 15 youth group kids were in our house every night. And they walked in. I remember Robbie Moore walked in the door and I just punched three holes in the wall. And uh, they walked in like they did every night and said, hey, Mr. I turned right around and more kids were coming. He said, not a good time. So they all got in their cars and they went away. And I left those holes in that wall for seven months. I could have fixed them the next day. I didn't fix them on purpose and said, I'm a pretty nice guy till I'm not. You know, anger. I don't know if that would affect any of us here to the extent that, that it uh, affects Roy. But there are other areas that, uh, you know, like, for me, it's judgmental. I, I, I'm judgmental all the time. And for a lot of people, I think that that's true. And then there are others that just accept things as they are with not being judgmental. So there are different uh, areas in you know, in individual lives. Now, I have discovered when you know what area in your life is attacking you, like being judgmental, and you see it coming, and you say no to it, I think that's the Lord dealing with mm-hmm. with you, and it becomes less and less as you say no, and you refuse to let it get its roots uh, into our minds. So I, I believe that we can truly uh, grow in that if we want to. Well, that's why I was asking, have you found ways? Do you sense it? Do you know it? Do you pray about it? 
Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I, I stories are pretty decades I, old. I would like to say that possibly what I have maybe learned a little bit is if I don't allow myself to be in those kind of situations where it can escalate, then, then, then it don't. But it, it's, it's almost like a light switch. I mean, I'm, I'm here and then turn on the light and then it's, so there, there's not much warning, but, um, for instance, let's just say, and, and, and this is not an area, but I'll just use it as an example. Let's just say I'm trying to get somewhere and I really need to be somewhere and the traffic is just terrible and I hit lights and people are cutting off and everything. If I continue to drive and go there, it ain't going to be good. It ain't going to be fun. But if I just say pull off and go in and get a, a drink or a soda or something and, you know, kind of, kind of let it, then that will abate it. But when that situation starts like that, if I don't put myself out of that situation, I'm I think there's a lot of people with road rage that, that that's exactly what happens. They don't get out of it. And you don't, you know, a technique, just pull off the side of the road. That's a good technique. Another one is just uh, somebody was saying to Shannon or somebody the other day, I just relax and say, I can't get there any faster. I am not in control of this. And you begin to let, you know what, if I'm late, I'm late. And the whole thing starts coming down. That's just a technique, but it's a technique in self-discipline through the Lord. You know where you're going and it ain't good. So you have to find another place to go somewhere else. And that's all I was saying. Everybody else, you know, we just gave our testimonies that this is an issue, um, but you can learn what Pastor said. You can learn how to say, wait a minute, Lord, I've been down this road before, and I know when my flesh takes over, that's not a good place. Let me see if I can find an escape like Lot. Mm -hmm. Yep. Let me find an escape route. Yeah. And so um, one thing about that is that uh, what you're is interesting this that the conversation has gravitated towards anger because that is one of the primary uh, aspects of our our application text Ephesians four where you've heard that phrase in scripture that says be angry and do not sin and that's actually part of what we're going to study today and so some of the stuff that we're talking about in culture that you see can if you focus on it it can really get you angry. Because you can realize that the paganization of America, which is happening before our eyes, is an assault on three highly vulnerable classes of people. The first is children. The second is women. And the third is the poor. These three classes of people have historically, from ancient times, had no protection, no rights, no one to look out for them. And now when you see these things coming into American culture and you hear a story, uh, even if it's just anecdotal, a news story or somebody's telling you something personally, it can it can really rile you up because you start focusing on, well, this poor child being abused. How could these people do this to them? And then you want to protect them, but you feel this powerlessness and you get this anger. And the other thing I would couple with that is that Jesus, when he was on earth in his earthly ministry, he was always approaching those three classes of people who had very little to 
zero protection in the Roman culture and Jewish culture of that day. He was always helping children. Remember, he raised Jairus' daughter, the 12-year-old from the dead. He, he helped the ones who are the outcasts of society. That same story, the woman who had the issue of blood for the 12 years, he, he healed her. Um, you have where he's reaching in and helping the lives of the poor all the time, feeding the thousands and thousands. I mean, he's doing all this stuff and he's standing up for women when they want to stone the woman who's caught in adultery. He's the one who stands there and says, well, let's talk about this. And in the process of that discussion, which is unfortunately for us was written in sand, but fortunately for the accusers, because many speculate it was their indictments of, well, let's see how many commandments you've broken this week, Bob. Let's write this one. Okay, Joe. The other, now, where were you on Thursday at two o'clock? Because I know because I'm God. And slowly, one by one, they all walk away. So he's always standing up for these people who are don't have protection. And so for us today, they do have protection. You know, women have rights. Children have rights. The poor have rights. But you can easily see how culture and society will begin to abuse these people, to manipulate them, to use them. And they will get crushed in the process of what society says is normal behavior. Um, verse seven, when you lived among them, think about Lot and that culture. It was all part of what he was. And culture will attach itself to you um, just by simple immersion, just by being in it. It sticks to you the same way you take that boiled egg at Easter and you dip it in that little uh, tray of dye and you pull it out. It's different. It might not be the exact color it was put in, but it reflects uh, the color it was in. And that's what happens to us. So, you know, magazine articles, TV shows, music, lyrics, movies, games. I mean, today gaming is huge in our culture uh, with people. So games, radio shows, you name it. it, it all of it uh, kind of seeps us. You know, we all just kind of sit in it and it, it gets around us. We don't even realize that it's, it's, it's leaching into us. And then it shows up in how we react in very unexpected situations and how we treat people. So, how can we help to avoid this? Yes, ma'am. I saw something the other day. Bless you. In a grocery line. Uh, there was a long line, and it was a young mother and a, a one-year-old that she was having trouble, you know, and trying to find her credit card, and the credit card wasn't working. And, mm. and the third person in line went up and said, may I help you? Took out her credit card, paid for groceries. Situation. Just, yeah, you that's know, a, and just, it's a beautiful and story. Her, you know, oh, really. Yeah, and you've and and a, that's a great illustration, and um, and I think that would be a lesson for all of us to to consider in those situations that. I can step into this situation. I can take some action and I can help this person. And whoever did that, I'm sure they um, felt, you know, good about themselves for doing that. And then if you think if you're a believer and you do something like that, that gives you the license to speak to this person and share the gospel with them. And maybe if they're a believer, encourage them in their faith and know that, you know, Jehovah Roy, that God sees them. Um. So uh, sometimes we don't even notice the subtle changes in ourselves um, that are going on. And then we're um, sometimes we're looking backwards and we're looking back in little ways each day. And we don't keep our eyes forward on Christ. Um, there's an old English word that I put in your notes. And if you ever play a game, 
So there's a, there's a word. There are all kinds of word games, right? So there's a word game you can uh, play with people, and this is an English thing, where they um, well they will say, "I have a word, and it's 27 letters, and it has four vowels. Name that word." And so you have to have this competition with this person that you're engaging in. And um, anyway, so this is one of those words. It's a great word for that game. This is actually one word: straightforwardness straightforwardness and that as i studied this seemed to me to be the the one of those instructions that the angelic messengers gave to lot is you just keep going straight forward with all your energy don't look back don't turn back you see your destination you see where you need to be just keep moving straightforwardness don't look back and um, it shows up in uh, there's places in your notes, Philippians 3, 13 through 14, brethren, do not regard myself. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward coming of God in Christ Jesus. And there are lots of these verses. Romans 12, 2 is another one. Do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17, all about the new creation. And most of Romans chapter 6 is uh, really speaks to this. So, Matthew, I have a visual of that. And I actually shared it in a prayer uh, Friday night when the Koreans were here. It was in my closing prayer. But it had come to me a couple of weeks earlier as I was reviewing some old things in my garage, some 20-year-old papers. And um, visions are helpful, I think. So I want to draw a picture of you, up for you. Uh, I've considered passing this on to the elders for a vision of Calvary. And the vision is this. If you think of, and I'm going to give you the picture that goes with it, but I'm going to have to display it. Uh, soldiers marching, three abreast. Long line. That's us. Head up, shoulders back, eyes straight ahead, marching. And where I got that from was when my troops in in New York had come back from uh, Afghanistan after their first deployment. They had a parade for them. And they were marching. Now, these are reservists. They fought the war. They've done a great job, fantastic job. Now they came back and the city was celebrating them. Reservists are not exactly known for being in step, for their uniform being perfect exactly. They're not shining their brass at night. They don't care about that anymore, but they will do the job. But we captured a picture and they were all. And so the picture is of 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 a hundred of them. But that first line and I said, that's it. That's the vision. That is Niagara Falls Air Reserve base. Head up, shoulders back, eyes straight ahead. So now you take that and you say, that is a vision for a church too. Head up. You're not, you're not moping around. Oh, we had to go to war. We had to do that. No, your head is up. Your shoulders are back because you're prepared. You're marching. You're in step with the rest of the group and you're walking forward and that's maybe that's not straightforwardness I think but it is. i think it is it, it's a it sums up a, an idea to say you guys did it now maintain that vision because now we're back at home it's time to study again it's time to prepare it's time to 
because they were going to turn around and end up being deployed again in the next three months. They thought they had done their deed, reservists, now they're never going to have to go. Well, the war got worse. And they ended up just having to go right back in. Go ahead, Chuck. That's a good analogy because soldiers spend most of their time training. Yes. Or something they don't do a lot. Yes. Mm. They train, they train, they train. And somebody always says, here's another little, little example, but the army private, why am I moving this dirt? Why? I got to dig a hole, move it over there, dig another hole, put it in. Then I got the next day they get up and say, now move the hole back there. They said, well, they don't get it. They don't understand. But when war comes, you will understand. We're moving forward. We're moving forward. And you just have to do sometimes what the boss says do, whether you understand it or not. There will come a time. And so that's a mental training more than it. But it also was working their their muscles. They were working hard every day. They were ready to be in the slop. They were ready to be in the heat. And they were ready to do whether it was dig a trench or just move forward 50 feet because they had trained themselves mentally and physically to do what was asked of them. And that's what we do. We train, train, train. So when we leave this place, we go out to the grocery store. We see those opportunities. I know what to do. When we start to feel like I know what to do, I've trained myself and I have learned to be content in whatever my situation. There's a lot to be said for that. Um, The other thing that comes to mind are the words of Jesus in Luke 14, 27. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be to my disciple. And Luke 9, 23 says, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. In Matthew 10, 38, Jesus continued this idea. He says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And in Luke 9, 24, 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and let yet lose or forfeit their very self of who they are? Flee for your lives. Don't look back and stop nowhere along the plain. Escape to the hills and you'll be or you'll be swept away. And so then um, a question in culture and where we are that comes to me is, you know, why bother? Why rock the boat? Why even respond to this stuff? What does it matter? And when we fail to respond to the evil that is outside of our homes, um, the evil sees an invitation to come inside of our homes. When we fail to respond to the evil that is outside of our homes, because we feel protected, that's not, that's not my, this isn't my circus. This is somebody else's monkey. This is not my job. That's when it can come into our homes and affect us. And it will, evil will come and it will attack us. If you think about, um, an armadillo. Now, armadillos are pesky and they're kind of interesting creatures. Now, you may be at your house and you may come out one morning and your flower bed is all dug up because the armadillos have attacked your gladiolas and you're angry over your gladiolas that you just planted being all dug up. But you don't take any action because the armadillo is just messing up your flower beds like, oh, whatever, I'll fix it later. But what you don't understand is that same armadillo at night is also going under your house and burrowing under the piers in the foundation of your home. And if you don't deal with the armadillo, he will take away the foundation of your home and it will lead to failure structurally and collapse. 
So what are you prepared to do? The first thing I would say to you is don't give up. Don't give up. That's the first thing. Um, The person in your life who needs their view of sexuality aligned to the intentions of our designer, God, when he invented sexuality, they still need the good news of the gospel. You cannot give up on that person. And this doesn't have to be a person who's, you know, marching in a gay pride parade. This can be a person in your family who's decided, well, I've been married and divorced and I don't want to go to that again. So we're just going to live together. That person needs the gospel. They need God in their life to bring them into alignment with what the Bible says, how people should live. God takes great delight in redeeming the most lost among humanity. Great delight in that because they are some of the greatest prizes that will ever be displayed in heaven among the struggle for the souls of men. Think about the stories that will be told in heaven over that person and their life and how messed up it was and how lost they were. And everybody said, well, he's a tax collector. She's a prostitute. That's a murderer. And then you get in heaven and they're sitting there because someone shared the gospel with them and brought them to redemption. Yes. So there's more more joy in heaven over one sinner that, that was lost than the 99 that were righteous. So it goes along exactly what you said. Yeah, so think about, think about this. Think about that person that I'm, and somebody's maybe coming to your mind right now, that person in your life that you know that's, you know, it's a cousin or a nephew or whoever, a friend or work, coworker, someone you know in your past, that you can think about them and you go, yeah, that, that, there's no hope for them. They're just, they're lost. It's awful. Every time they, they say they're straight, just a matter of time and they're back on the crooked path again. Think about how, much resources Satan has dedicated to the corruption of that soul. How much time he has very limited forces, by the way, he has a third of what God has the two thirds, right? A third of angels followed Lucifer. Therefore two thirds remain on God's side. He's outnumbered significantly. He doesn't have the knowledge to know where to put all his forces when he wants to do them. He doesn't know what he isn't God. So think about how many demonic, forces he has assigned to particular people to corrupt them, to keep them on the track of evil, because when they act in evil, they they disrupt the lives of others. They're collateral damage. They're not just damaging themselves. They're hurting others along the way. And then they break that relationship that person has with God and their belief in God. Sometimes they break that person's relationship with others. So they're able to sort of ripple out the effect. But all the energy that Satan put into that one person's life Whenever the gospel reaches into their heart and that person is changed and they switch teams, they get on God's side, all the investment that Satan has put into their life is wiped out. You talk about rejoicing in heaven. They have undermined the efforts of the enemy. Yes, sir. One of the things that fascinates me as an old-time pastor is uh, the things that I didn't know that I didn't know. So, this is one of the things that you didn't know that you didn't know. The only reason that we know that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over you know many that you know that are righteous is because Jesus said so. That's the only reason we know this. Now, when you think about that just for a little bit, you go, how amazingly gracious this is! How wonderful heaven is! 
that they're like this. You know, and you just go, oh, you know, thank you. I, I, I didn't know that I didn't know that. I mean, think about that for a bit. You know, so you can look at that from the other side too, the amazing grace that heaven operates this power to lure in, you know, those that we think are hopelessly lost. Yeah, sure. In uh, Luke 15, we have the story of the lost son, the lost coin, the lost sheep. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the whole chapter five times, the word joy or rejoicing is used when the person finds that it's lost. In scripture, we say if it's said three times, that's a lot. In that yeah. chapter five, and then the word Mary, celebration, is listed three times. Wow. That says a lot, doesn't it? So don't so don't give up on that person is the first thing. One last comment on that. It's not very often preached on this. That story of the lost son coming home does not have an ending. And Jesus, uh, uh, the, the father asks the older son, and shouldn't we rejoice when this son who was lost is dead and now is alive again? Question. We don't know the answer. And the answer, the, the non-answer is regarding the righteous one. You know, the guy that's, the, that's yeah, I guess, more righteous than not. Um, and so you're left wondering. And um, I I find it fascinating that Jesus stopped there. And uh, so what are we supposed to think about that? That the story doesn't end um, regarding the righteous one, not the unrighteous one. Um, I find that fascinating. I don't know the answer, neither do you. So it's something to ponder. <clears throat> I heard someone recently uh, speak about this, uh, the parable you're talking about, the, the two sons and the father. And um, made he made the idea, or put the idea, I never thought of it before, and maybe you know this, that the righteous son in that crowd would have represented the Pharisees who had kept all the rules all the time and always been in the temple and always been at synagogue and always been working and always doing everything. And then when they see the grace of God extended with the judgment of God, and this son says, I'll take the grace and I'll pass on the judgment. They get angry. And you're right. They, they, the story does not end. That's a great point. So, um, so the devil thinks he can count on this one. He thinks that this person, this one that you think can't be saved, the devil thinks, well, they're on my reservation for hell list. You know, they're going. I, they're just on my team. It's just going to happen. And then we, by either an act of kindness or a word of truth, are able to bring them out of that which is what God does for all of us. Um, the other thing I would say is that for us is um, don't give in. So don't give up on any of the people that you know in your life who need redeeming and then don't give in. And what I mean by that is, is don't compromise on scripture. Don't compromise with culture thinking that, well, if I just give in a little bit to this, then I'll be able to reach them and give them my truth, and then they'll listen to me. We need to remain true to the word, but we have to be careful with this because we don't want to be hurtful. We don't want to be offensive, and we always want to act in love. And I want to bring a phrase to you, and I hope it sticks to you like it stuck to me. Um, Dr. Chuck Missler said this once, and I wrote it down because it hit me so hard. He said, truth without love is brutality. Truth without love is brutality. And he went on to say, as he was teaching this passage, love without truth is hypocrisy. 
And that's what our culture does today. It extends love to people saying, approving whatever you're wanting to choice you want to make. But when that love doesn't have truth with it, now it has become hypocrisy. And then he made the point that in scripture, truth and love unite. But lies and selfishness will always divide. So he made law and grace. Yeah. It's law and grace. Law without grace and mercy is a heavy weight, as David would say. Your hand was oppressive on me because the law will crush you. It, it will, it will crush you. But with grace and mercy, you can get up from that. And the whole law and grace message. Um, and then you, the second one is us working it out. Right. Then you've got to walk out in the truth. But but if you don't have the truth, but truth without love or truth without grace, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And if you don't think so, let God just open your eyes to your depravity, to your anger, to whatever. And then you'll see, oh, golly, I thought I was bad, but now I see how really bad I was. And if he opens your eyes to how bad you are, uh, one, you will understand how great grace is, but you will see this is awful. And the thing is, we sometimes think, yeah, I'm a, I wasn't a very good person. Mm. Not very good is not a good description. Yes. Magnanimously awful is maybe a better description. There's another dialectic that we're beside that, and it's related to that, and it's called faith and doubt. Um, and let me say, first of all, that every last one of us has those two working at us constantly, all the time, and in uh, this side of the facade. Of, of the uh, I don't care how good a Christian you are, you still have some doubt grinding away. Well, well I'm getting the hot, I don't know. And so let me first say, that's normal, this side of the side. I mean, you're not going to get away with, get away with it uh, from it. Uh, the Great Commission, I guess I'm going to be preaching on June 4th, starts off this way. And Jesus gathered them all on the mountain, and they worshipped him, and they doubted. <laughs> they saw the resurrection, They, you know, and they're still doubting doesn't say some doubted, it says they also doubted. And that Jesus just went sweeping right by that and gave them the great commission. So uh, learn to live with doubt uh, as a sharpening of your faith. I just I would, guess that, I would try to say that pastorally. I hate when I doubt. I really do. Um, I have my doctor father at um, Luther Seminary, 101 years old now, Roy Harrisville. I'm still a little worried about dying. <laughs> but he is. He really is. You know what Chuck said for the soul of the man? That is the difference we hear listening or looking. We're seeing God's promises versus what we might think. And they say, I have overcome. This one says, you'll never overcome. This one says, I'm more than conquerors. This one says, you're not anything. This one says this. And the word of God the truth will set you free. And so the more we pour the truth into us in our daily devotionals, uh, our, all through the day, even if you start them in the morning, but all through the day, that word of truth comes back to you. 
to tell you what God is saying about you. Um, I had a friend last night at dinner who was saying what a terrible person he was most of the time. He was focusing on what the devil was saying. And and um, I said, the reason why, he says, I don't know why God would even spend one second with me. And And I said, yeah, he shouldn't really, except for that you were made in his image and created for his glory. And so he's spending a lot of time on you. And that's the truth. Not what he sees and not what he does every day. Not that he gets angry and he's still learning at 70 to deal with that. But the truth of God is saying, look what you're doing. And look what, what I'm doing with you. And this is a, a, a man that 15 years ago we were praying for because he was as lost as Hogan Goat. And now he's calling me up to take me to dinner to minister to me. and uh, But still doubting in his own life. So what should our strategy be according to scripture? Don't give in and don't give up. Well, I want us to put, uh, try and put some legs on this in the 10 minutes we have remaining. In Ephesians chapter four, if you have a Bible, turn there and start at verse seven. And I've called this truthing in public. Truth, I-N-G, in public. It's not a wrestling match, okay? It's a recognizing match, okay? Our job is not to wrestle with people, to pin them to the mat with the truth. Our position is to speak truth in public and allow them the opportunity to recognize it. And Ephesians chapter seven, uh, chapter 4, verse 7 starts like this. Now, to each one of us, grace has been given proportionate to the measure of Messiah's gift. That is why God says, when he went up to the highest place, he led captives into captivity and gave gifts to the people. Now, what does this he went up mean? Except that he also went down. He had gone down into the lower parts of the earth. And the one who went down is the same one who went up above all the heavens, so that all things would be fulfilled. Now, verse 7 is interesting because it it says this, each believer is equipped. You are equipped by not what you do or what you have done, but by what Messiah has done. And we are equipped for the work of the kingdom. And this equipping came as gifts to us from Jesus Christ because, one, He gave his life for our redemption. That's authority. He gave his life for our redemption. He entered into our place of punishment. He descended into hell. He retrieved his possessions from Satan, the souls of those who died, believing Messiah would one day come to redeem humanity. Fourth, he removed the redeemed from the captivity of Satan. Fifth, he ascended into heaven. Sixth, he made a public mockery of Satan and death by appearing to hundreds of people after his resurrection. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 says this, having erased the charges that were brought against us along with their obligations that were hostile to us, he took those charges away when he was nailed, when he nailed them to the cross, and when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. It's interesting, verse 16, therefore let no one judge you in matters of 
food and drink or with respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. It's interesting that when he gets to this phrase, triumphing over them with the cross, this word is the same idea that in those days when a Roman general would march out to conquer some territory, he would take prisoners, captives from that land, and he would chain them up and he would march them back in his victory march in the capital city. These are the prizes which I have captured. These are my captives of what I have conquered. And he's using that same language, talking about Satan and all his fallen angels. Now, what are these gifts? Messiah did all this stuff. And there's so much, you know, I like to say that the, the, the package, the gift box of your gospel is so deep and big, you can never pull everything out of it. It's a lot, right? But what are these gifts he's talking about? Well, in verse 11, he tells us this. He says this, and it is he who gifted some to be apostles, others to be prophets, others to be evangelists, others to be pastors and teachers. Now, these are the gifted roles for each of our lives. So what is the purpose of these offices and these roles? In verse 12, it says this Here's what we're supposed to do. Equip the saints to do the work of ministry and to build up the body of the Messiah. So look at this. You've got the inward preparing of the saints for life and for work of Christ. And then two, you have the outward or the inward work. So you have outreach or inreach, depending on how you want to use your vocabulary. Work of ministry to fellow believers and reaching out in acts of love to non-believers. And the third thing you do is you build up the body. You grow people in the knowledge of Christ in life. So how long does this mission last? Verse 13, until all of us are united in faith and in the full knowledge of the God's son, and until we attain mature adulthood and the full standard of development in the Messiah, this work is a lifetime mission. Now, what are the visible markers that we are accomplishing this work? Look at verse 14, the first marker. Then we will no longer be little children. You're growing in Christ. And how do you know you're not a little child anymore? By this, you're not tossed like waves and blown about with every wind of doctrine. So you are rooted in the doctrines of the faith. And when somebody comes along with some idea, it doesn't just sweep you away. The second marker is that by people's trickery, so people can't come along and trick you out of what you believe and what the Bible says. The third marker is by clever strategies that would lead us astray. These are three ways you know that you're accomplishing what God is asking us to do in this equipping. Now, just as believers are susceptible to these three strategies of Satan to undermine the life of the believer, think about poor people who do not have Christ do not have the Holy Spirit. They're being attacked by the same strategies and being led away by all these ideas and trickeries and the winds of doctrine and thoughts and all this new age stuff and all these things that come along and just captivate them. So how do we reach these ones who are being hurt by all these strategies of Satan? Verse 15 tells us, it says, instead, by speaking the truth in love. Now, please do not miss this subtlety. People hear the strategies of Satan, and they hear truth, but it is not truth, and it is not lovely. Truth and love unite. Lies and selfishness divide. These are lies spoken as truth that fulfill one of the primary missions of Satan, which is the division of people from each other and the separation of people from God. 
It continues in the verse, he says this, we will grow up completely and become one with the head, that is with the Messiah. Remember, one of the primary goals of Satan is to separate us from God by doubting his promises, by disbelieving his word, and refusing the work of reconciliation with God. The believer is the reverse of these three goals of Satan. We receive the promises of God, we believe in his word, and we live in a relationship being forgiven and reconciled to God. Verse 16, in whom the whole body is united and held together by every ligament, which is supplied as each individual part does its job, the body builds itself up in love. So think about, yes, sir. In love. So yesterday I wrote, read a, an opinion piece saying that it's loving to address this business about trans, um, genderism and say that you're you're working or you're, you're meeting a transgender person. Let's compromise. You know, I'll treat you with dignity and you won't get touch at all the problem that you're having. That that's the loving thing. Let's compromise. So the opinion piece said that the loving thing to do in this situation is simply to compromise and say, okay, you're, you're finding the way you are and, and I'm accepting blah blah blah. Um is that loving? Is the question. You know, shall we go out into this world and say it's always loving to compromise with evil? I don't think so. Uh, it's difficult sometimes to be loving because loving sometimes means you need to also confront. Um, so, how do you do truth with love in that particular situation? I don't know, but I don't agree with the opinion piece that it is. Why don't we as Christians just bang go along to get along? That's pretty much what he was saying. Uh, is that the definition of loving? And it's it's a question I think that we need to, to be dealing with in in your presentation here. Uh, how do we uh, how do we uh, combine truth with love given the difficult situations that, that we're going to face? I know I'm going to be facing it when I go back to my family reunion in July, and uh, I've got some of mom's uh, in laws going. I have my my pronouns are he him. That already is a, a betrayal of the Christian faith. So here I am, uh, one of the two pastors that are going to be going here. How how do we um, how do we uh, address this? Um, it's really it's it's a hard question. Um, and also I, I know we're out of time, so mm -hmm. we want to pray. Yeah, so I've got the answer right here, but I can't give it to you. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you, there is a short answer that says this. Um, in a group full of people that all had opinions, I just said, well, I'm a Christian. And as a Christian, this is what I believe. And and I didn't get angry at him or anything. I just said, as a Christian, this it, it was on abortion on that one. And I just left it at that to say, um, you can have whatever beliefs you want. That That's the whole world. It's going to be your family, so it's close. But if we can walk out on the street. That's to anybody. But we declare, well, I believe in Jesus. And I, I, I don't see in Scripture where he says that that's an option for me. So I think that you probably are perishing, but I'm, that doesn't mean I hate you. And if you can versus I think you're perishing, but but I love you. But I I, I think that's a, a perishing lifestyle for you. That's the truth. Yeah. It's in love. It's not mean. It's just saying you may have the feeling about me. 
You may think I'm lost in going to somewhere. Maybe you don't, but I do. And so it would be remiss. I would be remiss mm-hmm. if I didn't share. So will you be here next week? Okay, good. Because I have a short list of 32 ways you can practically do this. Short list, which we don't have time to get into. I will leave you this with this one image before I pray. Um, and it is this. Y'all remember the movie, The Poseidon Adventure? Poseidon Adventure, the ship that got hit by the wave and it's turned upside down. And there's people trying to survive and get out. And, and, and they're, they're going down one of the hallways in this ship. And they meet another group of people. And they're going in opposite directions. And the one group is trying to convince the other group that you're heading the wrong way. It's not going to work the way you're going. You've got to go this way. If you go that way, you're going to be trapped and drowned. You'll never escape. But if you come with us, we know the way to get out of here. And we're going to be saved. Don't you want to come with us? And that's where we are today culturally. America is upside down, hit by this wave. And people are saying in the hallway of of the Poseidon, this is the way out to save yourself. And I say, no, 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 this is the way to go. And so as we enter in that conversation, which you're, you're going to have to do, and we all will eventually, some, we will have to face it at some point. We need to be equipped with the practical ways to bring truth with love, without brutality to people, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your love for us, for your care for us, that you speak the timeless words of scripture and tell us what we can do and what we can say and how we can be your vessels equipped to rescue those who once like us were perishing with reservations in hell. Help us to change their reservation cards and bring them into your kingdom so we can be united with them on streets of gold. In the name of Jesus, amen.